Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. I'm not quite sure how to start this episode because we all know things are different and strange right now, but I want to mention two things. First, HFMA has a special section on our website dedicated to coronavirus coverage. I'll post a link in the show notes and mention it at the end of this episode as well. You can also go into our communities to learn about how other organizations are handling this crisis. The second thing I want to mention is that we are keenly aware that the challenges you're facing with the coronavirus don't make all the other challenges in your organization magically go away. So we're going to be covering more of our quote-unquote normal content too. To that end, for today's episode, we have Scott Rowe of Conifer Health Solutions discussing revenue cycle technology, and Nick Hutt has an interview with Marla Weston, former CEO of the American Nurses Association, discussing everyday business practices that hospitals can use to bolster their communities. In addition, we have Chad Mulvaney's interview with our sponsor for this week, GHX. All that is coming up after we go Beyond the News. This is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us once again on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Today, of course, we're looking real quick at the congressional actions related to the coronavirus. First up is the legislation that is uh, apparently advancing today, March 25th, in Congress. And uh, there's been some top line numbers put out, but uh, at this point, no language. So what we know about it is being reported as a $2 trillion stimulus and virus response package. The final language, uh, of course, waits to be seen. But uh, a statement, for instance, put out by Senator Chuck Schumer says the package includes $150 billion for healthcare, and that includes $100 billion for hospitals. Generally speaking, those numbers appear to match the $100 billion requested by the American Hospital Association. However, it's unclear if the package also would provide loans such as the $100 billion that had been sought by the Federation of American Hospitals. So, uh, Chad, as far as what's knowable, uh, what's, what's key here? So, it's 1.30 Eastern time on March 25th. So, as Rich mentioned, we don't have the details, but certainly hospitals need really two things out of this. One, obviously, because most, if not all, hospitals have heeded the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services guidance and delayed elective procedures or delayed some or all elective procedures. There's been an incredible hit to revenues, and often these are the commercially insured elective procedures that, quite honestly, float the rest of the operation and provide the, the margin, margin that keeps the health system sustainable. So one of the asks is to make hospitals whole for sort of that sacrifice in the name of public good. And then obviously the other piece of it is hospitals right now across the country are incurring tremendous expense related to the response to the coronavirus. You know, whether it's trying to acquire additional space to set up acute care beds, whether it's trying to acquire additional ventilators that are projected to be needed, whether it's you know to respond to the spike in prices for PPE or the spike in labor for temporary labor to not only provide the nurses and respiratory therapists and physicians that will need to treat the surge, but then to also backfill for employed staff that need to be quarantined because they've been exposed to the virus. So that's really what the demand is. And honestly, the the situation for some smaller providers, rural hospitals we're hearing could be, without this funding, could be quite tenuous. Uh, we've certainly seen examples in the press and heard from members 
that without this, some hospitals could have as little as six weeks worth of payroll left. And of course, the fewer days cash on hand is is a is a metric a lot of finance folks are watching uh, for hospital sustainability during the crisis. Uh, I suppose that's correct. What we're hearing in the package, as you mentioned, there's a hundred billion dollars specifically for hospitals. It sounds like we're not sure what the vehicle is through which that'll flow. We're also potentially hearing that there may be a bump in Medicare payments for coronavirus patients. That could be upwards of 20% of what the normal DRG payment would be. And my guess is it's going to be based on something around a pneumonia DRG. Possibly related, but moving on to the second package, uh, this would have been the already enacted second coronavirus board package that had a lot less of a hospital focus. But what can you tell us about that package, Chad, that hospital folks should be paying attention to? That was passed and signed into law just last week, which seems like a, a small lifetime ago. I think top line, the two things in there that would be of most interest to hospitals and health systems and providers would be the increase in the Medicaid matching rate. So it temporarily increases the Medicaid matching rate by 6.2% for states. And it's not hard to imagine that those dollars will flow down to hospitals from their states, either through increased payment rates during the emergency or expanded coverage, or maybe some combination of both. So that's point one. Point two, there was a provision in there that requires coverage of testing for COVID and the related and the services related to the testing. And that would be for all payers, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, commercial. And it also provides or appropriates funding to cover testing through the uninsured through the National Medical Emergency Relief Fund. Other pieces in that that would be important for providers. Certainly there was the paid leave act. So Individuals who don't typically have access to paid leave in many organizations would now have access to that. And then finally, there was some funding for food and nutritional support to help protect those among us who are, are most, most at risk or most vulnerable. It's a technical question, but have you heard any clarification on whether the FMAP bump in that legislation, that now enacted law, whether it just applied to the standard Medicaid population or was that bump also being applied to the ACA expansion population? So from 90% match, is it going up? Is it? That is, that's a great question. I don't have clarity into that at this time. Okay. Well, thank you for all the insight and updating us on this fast moving legislation. And uh, we will definitely be staying on top of it and giving our listeners updates as uh, the information becomes available. Of course, you can also keep up with the latest policy developments related to healthcare finance on our news page, and that includes updates from Chad directly in terms of understanding the significance of various news developments at hfma.org forward slash news. We talk a lot at HFMA about the patient financial conversation, but good relationships with payers are just as important. Scott Rowe, a vice president at Conifer Health Solutions, talked with me recently about how technology can aid in those relationships. You know, you look at the amount of time that someone spends statusing a claim. I visit different call centers and I watch folks on the phone and try to get a hold of somebody and they can status a certain number of claims before they have to hang up and actually dial back. And it just seems so frustrating. And I don't think that's what people want to do for a job. And I think uh, certainly you could make the revenue cycle more effective if you leveraged advanced data integration with payers um, and built out more of these EDI transactions so that 
at any given time, both the payer and the provider were aware of what's going on with a claim. We actually have seen some models built where you can use uh, machine learning to say, okay, based on the historical behavior of this payer, I know they're going to pay on day 41. So I'm not going to put that on anybody's desk to call and follow up with a payer until at least day 42, because it's likely to resolve by itself. So, you know, there's there's intelligence we can use to even drive what activity occurs. And then there's automation that can actually perform most of that activity to begin with. Roe also talked about the opportunities for effective denials management. And in particular, you know, you think about the variation in claims payment and as contracts change and as payer behavior changes and as, you know, providers submit different types of claims over time, it's very difficult to make sense of you know, the trends that are occurring in these payments, it's hard to identify maybe if a contract is modeled incorrectly just based on the sheer volume of claims that you're processing. So you can use technologies that'll actually um, fingerprint or identify the characteristics of a claim and highlight for you when they begin to see trends, even as few as 10 claims, you can identify a trend and escalate that through a different path that's more conversational with a provider or, or a payer rather. Um, instead of doing this death by a thousand cuts, I'll just appeal everything and I'll, they'll deny it again and I'll appeal it and I'll deny it and we'll waste all this time. You can accelerate resolution of your claims and, and shorten your AR days significantly if you can just take those conversations that are broader to a different level using technology. What are some other financial benefits of, of this kind of technology use? You know, on the front end, a lot of it is is securing that account. And that's that sounds like a very RCM you know, term. It's not very patient-friendly necessarily, but you want to know up front that, you know, the patient understands what the liability is going to be and can plan for that. And again, you mentioned satisfaction. That's probably more from a consumer standpoint. But you also want to know that if they're clear up front what it's going to be, you can establish payment plans. You can collect some of the money up front. It's just, I hate going to restaurants where I don't know what the price is on the menu. It's very, it makes me very nervous. And so from a provider standpoint, you want your consumers to know what it's going to cost because you want to be able to recover those dollars. So I think on the front end, that's certainly the benefit. You know, the financial benefit on the back end, if you talk about, you know, not wasting resources to follow up on an activity that's going to occur anyway, I mean, that's an immense amount of savings. You can actually deploy people only to exception-based models and you're really saving a lot of your overhead. In terms of the payment side, the financial benefits are accelerating that cash, you know, the uh, the denials piece I pointed out. That drags out your AR days um, so far. And then you have aging that gets greater than 90 and your likelihood to recover just significantly drops. If you have these models that can tell you up front which claims are at risk more immediately, these technologies, right, these machine learning models and this AI, this concept that the system can alert you to risk, the uh, financial risk then you can divert your resources to those activities as opposed to sort of broadcast you know, working claims holistically and really focus on the, on the dollars that are at risk and leave the ones that are going to pay anyway to be resolved. So there's a lot of benefit front, middle, and back in that respect. Do you have any examples of places where this type of technology has been implemented that has seen some some good results from it? I'm putting yeah, you, you on the spot uh, with this one, but... No, that, that's fine. We, um, I actually do. So I can talk specifically about some different KPIs, kind of the so what on these different things, not probably specifically to any one client per se. But when you do these types of things, you know, we've seen about a 96% patient satisfaction around scheduling, which is extremely high, um, given the fact that, you know, a lot of cases, that's a very uh, frustrating area for some patients. We've seen Coding quality scores at 97% using this technology. 
uh, reducing DNSD days by about 47%. Using the, we talked about denials earlier um, and you know, fully automation of denials. So the idea that you can identify trends, but also if you look at the denials that you can automate, meaning the ones that actually have to be appealed, and if you automate some of that through RPA and otherwise, we've seen about 30% of our denials fully automated, meaning there's no human touch whatsoever on those. And then, you know, AR cycle times, we talked about accelerating some of that cash. We've seen a 33% reduction in AR cycle times. I can share other stats, but there's pretty material changes that occur when you look at implementing these type of technologies, you know, improvements or, or industry-leading benchmarks in terms of patient satisfaction and turnaround time. The role that a healthcare provider plays in the community is incredibly important, and it's often underappreciated. But the role that they play is incredibly important. And but the fact that this industry as a whole is being really squeezed in terms of profitability and just just access to funds, and so that to me that makes revenue cycles so much more important because it provides those organizations the foundation to be able to go provide care in the communities that they're in. So that might be more doctors, it might be more equipment, it might be research. But I think you know when you look at revenue cycle. You'd look at it and just say, yeah, go get the money and make it perform well and, you know, make patients happy. But it really is a gateway to allowing those providers to be more effective. And so that's why I think about this technology that we've discussed. And it's important to me because uh, that's really the next big evolution in advancing, you know, our effectiveness in this industry, in this revenue cycle industry. And it's out there. I mean, this, these technologies that we're talking about have been used in retail settings and in other consumer settings for a long time. We need to deploy them here. And there's some good partners out there. I mean, there's there's cloud providers. There's vendors that do this stuff. There's full revenue cycle outsourcers, very effective ones, um, you know, one that I know in particular. But, you know, I think there's there's ways to make that improvement, and I think we can't ignore it. But when you look at the technology, there's a lot of uh, opportunity out there. I think you just have to kind of have to sit down and think about, how am I going to go from being this reactive people intensive, not using my data, I don't have any analytical insight, you know, inherently manual process where everything gets dumped into AR management. And how do we advance that work up to the front end where we make it more consumer facing? We use technology to drive intelligence and focus our efforts really where it needs exception based issues, not more broadly applicable across all the AR. How do I, you know, use tools like AI and RPA and those types of things to drive that? it's very doable. I think it just takes the time to sit down and invest in it and find where you're gonna where you're gonna make the investment. And then I think we shouldn't understate the value of organizational change management because it's not just about deploying tools, but it's also about making sure that you have the right partners or the right thought around how am I gonna get people to actually make this change? Am I gonna create incentives for them? Am I gonna retrain individuals? How am I gonna make sure that it's effective? Because you, you can plug a technology in, but even if it's effective in and of itself, it won't work if people don't adopt it and make that human change. So those are the key things I think that we as an industry need to focus on, and that's why it's important to me. Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic, and the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click Topics, then Coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. 
Although many of us are practicing social distancing, we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together, and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL, and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now, collectively, to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites, and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites, and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more. By working together, we will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA, and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you. Hello, this is Nick Hutt, an editor with HFMA. I'm speaking with Dr. Marla Weston, the CEO of the American Nurses Association from 2009 to 2018. Marla presented at HFMA's 2019 Thought Leadership Retreat on how leading health systems can leverage everyday business practices to improve the health of their communities. Marla, thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. Broadly speaking, why are hospitals in a strong position to positively affect poverty in their communities? Hospitals are well embedded in their communities. They are what we refer to as anchor institutions, organizations that are physically located for a long time inside of a community. Uh, schools, libraries, fire departments, hospitals are all anchor institutions. And one of the things that we know about hospitals is that they are large employers in their communities. They're large consumers of goods in their communities. As a matter of fact, hospitals are the largest employer in 16 states. And because of that, they not only affect the health of their communities through the caregiving that we give, but they very directly affect the economic viability of their communities. And because of that, hospitals have the opportunity to leverage their everyday business practices to influence the economic well-being of their communities. And by everyday business practices, I mean things like hiring, purchasing, investing. So things that hospitals do every single day as a matter of course can be thought about in how do we do this in a way that makes our community more economically viable. So you just touched on how hospitals can direct their hiring and training practices to boost their communities. How specifically can they go about doing that? And is there even a benefit to their bottom lines from doing that? The way that hospitals can direct their hiring and training practices is really by starting at looking at the zip codes in their local geographic area and think about where there are socioeconomically depressed areas and begin targeting those areas to recruit people to come to work for the entry-level positions that the hospital has to offer. Uh, really, the advantage for people in the community is that they are there, typically very close by the hospital. 
the hospital tends to give very secure employment with great benefits and a lot of longevity. The benefit for the hospital is that when you hire people from these areas and train them well and prepare them well, what we notice is that uh, these employees stay. As a matter of fact, turnover can be greatly reduced. Now, one of the challenges that hospitals have in attracting and recruiting people from these socioeconomically depressed areas is that we don't have an infrastructure that is really good at targeting, recruiting, and training people. So one of the strategies that hospitals can utilize is by partnering with a workforce intermediary that already has experience in working with people in these communities. And by a workforce intermediary, I mean organizations like workforce investment boards or city offices of economic development or even uh, maybe local chambers of commerce. There might be nonprofit organizations that have long worked with people in the community to make them job eligible. And one of the nice things about hospitals partnering with people with workforce intermediaries is that much of the burden of identifying even pre-interviewing or training people in the community can be borne by the workforce intermediary. What do hospitals tend to overlook regarding the business case for taking a local approach to uh, supply chain management and sourcing? Well, one of the challenges, of course, right now with sourcing is that so much of our sourcing is done through GPOs. And so we tend to not pay attention to those products and services that we both are sourcing locally or even have the opportunity to source locally. And once again, by turning your attention to those things that you can source locally uh, and directing that literally to socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. So uh, once again, thinking about local zip codes where there are opportunities to source things like laundry services or food or construction or items for our gift shops anything that could be sourced locally. And once again, even partnering with local government or nonprofit organizations that are looking to build stronger businesses in the community can really help to strengthen those businesses. And that ties into the concept of community investments. I think a lot of hospitals make community investments, but what types of targeted investments should they consider making, um, again, in, in the context of providing a boost to their communities? Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that hospitals in the United States today have about $400 billion in investment assets. And one of the simple strategies is just to take a small percentage of those investment dollars and even invest them in local community banks, uh, particularly local community banks that are serving underprivileged communities. And uh, even partnering with some community development financial intermediaries. Uh, as you described, many hospitals are underwriting loans or even uh, giving access to capital for 
all sorts of business development, everything from improving housing in local communities to addressing food deserts by supporting grocery stores being built in local communities. And all of that are really targeted community investments. The key here is really to think about how to use the hospital's investment dollars in a way that strengthens the local community over time so that the infrastructure becomes sustainable. And if, if you were running a hospital and wanted to get started on implementing some of these approaches, what would be some good first steps? One of the first things I would do is I would pull together the team of people that are already doing this work. In every organization, you probably have people who are already paying attention to this. You probably have someone who's doing some sort of community outreach. You probably have someone in your HR department who is targeting hiring of nursing assistants and uh, food service workers and environmental service staff, those entry-level employees. You probably have somebody in your materials management department who's uh, doing the local sourcing. So pulling together those people that you already have doing this work to find out what exactly is going on. And what's interesting is that those people probably don't even know each other. So just bringing them together will be impactful. Uh, The second thing I would do is just get some data around what are the zip codes in your local community that you want to target? And what work are you already doing? Do you have employees, for example, from those zip codes? What's caused success in hiring and and sourcing from those local zip codes? Or what have been the barriers that people have encountered? So that's the second thing I would do is just get some information about where you are. Uh, and then the third thing I would do is Think about what your goals are and look for community partners. As you've described, part of what makes this so daunting is that those of us who've been in healthcare are really good at running hospitals. We're not really good at doing this community-based work. And there are lots of people out there who have years and years of experience in doing this. So bringing them in to be our natural partners. And I think if people do just that, the group will garner its own momentum and be able to go from there. Uh, Marla, Mm -hmm. thanks so much for your time and sharing your very valuable perspective. For much more insight on forward-thinking ideas to address social determinants of health, check out HFMA's report on our 2019 Thought Leadership Retreat. It's available on the Research and Trends page under the Industry Initiatives tab at hfma.org. Hello, my name is Chad Mulvaney, and I'm a policy director with the Healthcare Financial Management Association. And I have the pleasure of being joined today for a conversation with Karen Conway, who is Vice President Healthcare Value of GHX. HFMA and GHX are embarking on research to help understand the different types of capabilities that healthcare systems will need to manage risk through alternative payment models, and where HFMA members are in terms of developing those capabilities with the idea that hopefully we'll be able to identify best practices and possibly other tools that will help our members be prepared to be successful in the future.
Karen, welcome. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Chad. I am very, very pleased to be a part of this conversation, part of this research, because the questions you just outlined are so very important and often very difficult. Karen, you know, as I think about the first phase of research, which we're going to discuss, we've had the opportunity to survey 274 hospitals and health systems, really trying to understand the capabilities that they'll need and what their strategies are as they think about taking more risk. And so really what I want to do is sort of have a conversation with you about what surprised you, what didn't surprise you. Well, you know, Chad, at first I have to admit I was surprised by what I saw as very low levels of net patient service revenue at risk, especially given all the news we're hearing about 25, 35, even higher higher percentages of revenue that are flowing through APMs or alternative payment models. But then I thought about it, and you know, many of those are still upside only. Mm -hmm. So when you ask the question about actual revenue at risk, having it be at less than 3% on average, which is what we found, that's really not that surprising. What was surprising to me and continues to be is how little the respondents expect that percentage to grow over the next five years. Karen, I couldn't agree with you more. And in terms of the future risk, if we were playing sort of the price is right, name the price game, I would have lost because the survey respondents on average anticipate that less than 7% of their net patient service revenue will be at risk either in an upside or downside model in the next five years. A little perspective, I think, helps. Number one, a couple of people called into question sort of how you define risk and sort of with the capabilities, and maybe that is material enough to sort of change business models. The other perspective that I heard that I thought that was incredibly useful in sort of framing this is that if you think about the average health system operating margin today, and depending on what data source you use, it could be anywhere from two and a half, three, three and a half percent. In today's world, at roughly 3% revenue at risk, if you're successful, you can double your margin. If you're not successful, you can eliminate your margin. And then when you sort of grow that to 7%, that tips you from red to black pretty quickly, depending on whether or not you're successful. So maybe that is enough revenue at risk to really change behavior and drive health systems to change business models. We operate a HFMA GHX advisory council with CFOs, and one of the members had a really interesting take. He said that maybe this whole issue of how much revenue is at risk is really not the question in terms of what's the tipping point to change behavior. He said maybe it's more about how much risk you're taking on. Uh, taking into consideration things like patient and population risk factors. So that starts to become more of an upstream consideration, thinking about what actually impacts your ability to manage risk, and in particular, that ability to, say, stratify and manage high-risk patients, which are ultimately going to impact your revenue. And, I, you know, I thought that was a pretty insightful comment because, you know, is it really risk if you're positioned to management and you understand what you're managing? And I think that's where it gets into the five domain of, domains of capabilities that we at HFMA think you need to successfully manage risk. And it's really informed by the years of research that we've done through our value project. And so what we were looking at were domains around physician alignment, physician engagement, business intelligence, clinical pathway redesign, and also care coordination. And the thing in the data that absolutely didn't surprise me was that the more revenue at risk you had today, the more revenue at risk you anticipated having in the future, the greater your self-reported assessment of your capabilities were across all five of those domains. 
That's not surprising to me either. Um, but the question then really is, which came first, more revenue at risk or greater capabilities? Or in other words, did taking on more risk require those systems to expand and enhance their capabilities? Or because they had those capabilities already, is that what made them more comfortable to take on more risk? I guess it's a classic chicken and egg question. Let's start by exploring some of those key capabilities that you mentioned earlier, starting with physician engagement. So I want to reference some other research um, first, um, some by Lumiere, which, full disclosure, is a GHX company. They conducted a study and found that 86% of physicians believe that having access to more data on clinical variation would help them improve quality. But surprisingly, only about half of them said their organizations were working on programs to reduce clinical variation in practice or in the selection of the drugs or devices that are used based on the needs of specific patient populations. As for cost, more than 90% of physicians surveyed in that same survey said that more access to cost data would also improve the quality of care. But this time, only 40% said their organizations were working to provide it. So let's look at the HFMA research findings, and they further support this. I was very surprised that fewer than one-third of respondents said they're currently providing comparative cost data on practice variation or providing procedure cost data to physicians. You know, that, that seemed low to me as well. I mean, you think about the current environment and the margin pressures that hospitals are currently under just in fee-for-service and the anticipated additional pressure through rate cuts to fee-for-service or stagnant growth in, in per-unit prices. I mean, this to me is an all-weather capability, right? You need it to manage that margin pressure today, but in the future, regardless of what your APM strategy is, you're going to need to be able to offer competitive unit or competitive prices on inpatient stays, outpatient procedures and services to either your own health plan that you own or your preferred partners that you're partnering with. And so without that data, that ability to provide it to physicians and help them sort of manage the total cost of care or the cost of care, depending on what unit you want to use, you're kind of flying blind. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Thanks to our sponsor this week, GHX. For all the latest from HFMA on the coronavirus, go to hfma.org and click Topics, then Coronavirus. As you know, if you're a regular listener, my last comment in each episode is usually that we want to hear from you. And this time, I have a specific request. Tell us how your organization is dealing with the coronavirus. What challenges do you have? What has helped you with those challenges? Please reach out to us at podcast at hfma.org.